Blog Talk Radio. Child abuse trauma 
and to find a way to a comfortable life. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals who assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. Their trauma-informed perspectives as survivor professionals will help them guide discussion on the issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that spring from questions and topics brought to us by our listeners. Everyone's invited to engage on tonight's show, and the way that you can do that is to call in on the telephone, regular old-fashioned telephone, and the phone number is 646-595-2118. I'll repeat that, 646-595-2118. And we want you to call in and participate in tonight's show. And so tonight we introduce Bill Murray, founder of the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And hello, Bill. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for leading the show tonight. Thank you. Glad to do it. I think we're going to have a good... Sorry? I said, I'm glad to do it. Yeah. We should mention that there's a pause um, that's difficult at first to get accustomed to, but once you get it, you get it. In between um, your stopping and the other person's ability to start on the other other line, there there needs to be a kind of a pregnant pause because uh, otherwise you step on each other. In other words, the sounds overlap. That's just a function of Bob Talk Radio, but we'll see how we do. I'm sure we'll do fine. Well, thank you for the explanation. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what happens. That's why we sometimes, um, you know, have the next piece of audio cover up the first piece or somebody talks too early. They get nervous that the other person's not going to speak and they speak again and they (laughs) run into them. So. Okay. All right, I I want you to uh, know that um, this organization is unique. Uh, you know this, but I mean I want the audience to know. the the uh, The organization is unique, and it's it is unique because it, it was it was created from the ground up, pretty much little pieces at a time. I was in recovery for quite a few years before I started to consider starting a group like this. Uh, it's really a community. This, it's not really so much a group. It's a family. We call it the, the NASCA family. However, we have all kinds of tools and resources and, you know, and, and tool and uh, functions and services. And they got added one at a time uh, about, well, how long has it been? Like 12 years ago, 13 years ago or something? Um, yeah. And by that time, I was already 25 years into recovery. And um, I knew a lot about recovery. I'd had a lot of experience. So I'd had experience that was good, and I'd had experience that was bad. Uh, I had experience where some of the aspects of it were comfortable, and and, and I had experience where some of the aspects of it were horrible, I thought, (laughs) at least for me. So I made up this. Uh, organization by way of 
putting together the things that I thought were best about recovery or about other groups. I found in other groups, of course, and um, and then eliminating the things that I thought were worse. That's what NASCA is. It's a place of comfort for, for me, but I know I'm not unique. A lot of people feel like me. Uh, in fact, almost everybody does. It's a lot of identity with survivors, especially in terms of how they feel and how they think. Uh, not so much with the the trauma. The trauma can be different. The the act of the trauma it could be sexual, it could be emotional, it could be whatever. But you have um, you have a, a similar experience that is kind of universal. So you have like the feeling of low self esteem. You have the feeling of uh, not being good enough, right? You have the feeling of feeling like you're responsible for what happened as a child. You have the feeling of fear that people will find out. You have depression. You have These are all co- very common things. If I went on and rattled off of 15 or 20 things, a lot of us would be nodding our heads all the way through because that's what we have in common, the effect, the effect that, are, that the abuse has on us now that we're, uh, you know, of age, that's trauma. And that's what I'm working on. So, um, you know, I just wanted to point out that this is not uh, a branded thing. It doesn't, you know, it's just, it's brand new and unique. It's all volunteer. Uh, there are no paid people. Uh, there are, um, there are, there is no building to support. There, we, we do this over the uh, Internet and over our cell phones pretty much. All over the world, though, it's a global effort, uh, the majority of which is in North America. But um, we, you know, we, we consider um, anybody who wants to be a member of NASCA to be a member of NASCA. There's no registration. There's no dues or fees. Nobody's paid. We're all volunteers, including me, of, uh, of um, doing it out of the goodness of their heart, the people that do it. And we have a lot of need for volunteers because we do a lot of things. So I just wanted to cover a little bit of base like that. And I'm, I'll be happy to, um, you know, uh, to t- talk about uh, either either NASCA itself or my recovery or anything about any, any subject or topic that has to do with the issues of child abuse and trauma. It's prevention, intervention, and recovery. Uh, so, Annie, thank you so much for having me tonight. And uh, I'll let you have a couple of words now. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you, Bill. We do have callers on the line, so why don't we ask if they have any questions. I'll start by buzzing in Albert. Are you there, Albert? Yes, I am. Good evening. Good evening. Do you have a question or something to say? Yeah, I was just wondering if we could speak to the the concept that it's important to first identify that there are trauma wounds, there are emotional wounds um, from what has happened in the past and as the first step since we talked about 12 steps. And it's not as important the modality we use to heal, but identifying that there is healing to be done and some of the various different ways in which we can begin that healing journey. Okay. well, it, it, this is something that happens at different ages in our childhood. So some people get, start to be abused when they're three years old, and some people not until they're 15 years old. But if you're under 18, that's what we call being a child still. 
And if you're abused in any way, and by the way, NASCA considers uh, violent uh, abuse, uh, sexual assault, uh, emotional trauma, and neglect, all four of those categories, to be abuse. And it can happen in different combinations. Now, you may know that you have, that you're not being treated so well, and you, you have to decide if that's, that's abuse. For example, that could be emotional abuse because your mother's really tough on you. Now, is that abuse or is it not? And that may take a little struggle. But if your father's beating you, you know, every day or every other day or every week, that's abuse. You don't have to figure that out. What you do have to do, though, and almost all of us have to go through this, is at some point, uh, and I'm assuming that it wasn't found out while you were a child here, uh, you know, if, you're, if somebody as an adult intercedes, and we may get into that later, if somebody as an adult intercedes, then they quicken the opportunity, at least, for the, for the growing child to um, start to get in recovery. But, I, but let's take the, the example, I think you were saying, of, of a person who, who, was, uh, who was abused and who had trauma but didn't know what to do with it, and then at some point they, had to, they felt they had to make a decision. And by the way, if that's the scenario, the, 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 the typical time of a recovery is about 40, 42, something like that, average-wise, for an adult. That's waiting quite a while, and it, it's, uh, it's at least 20 to 25 years into your adulthood uh, if you, you, know, if you um, hold on to this. And what are you doing? You're keeping the secret. This is the, this is the real crux of it. it. It's not so much that you don't know that you were hurt, abused. It's that you don't think you can talk about it. You shouldn't talk about it because it was maybe supposed to happen. As I said before, you may think that it's your responsibility or your fault that that you were that you were traumatized that your uh, that your uncle <laughs> made sexual advances to you or 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 raped you, you know. Uh, but it's never the child's fault for any of this. It's always the adult's responsibility, never the child's. You know, it's still it's amazing how powerful the perceived need to keep the secret is with almost all of us. So I'd say the, the crux of it is that you know, there are a lot of modalities, as you said, and we can get into those too. But I think the, the main thing is that you want to break the silence, give up the, your story. And in order to do that, you do have to find somebody that's sympathetic to you uh, and, and won't, um, you know, won't, destroy you by saying the wrong thing when you're telling your story. Uh, so you, want to, you may want to pick a counselor. You may, you may want to go to a group. You, know, you may want to uh, use your parish priest or a minister or something like that. Uh, you may want to go to a psychiatrist. It's, it's, all these things are possible, and there's many more. We can talk about that later, too. However, if, if you need to find somebody who uh, – understands that we call it trauma-informed. They're trauma-trained or trauma-informed. And this would relate, for example, to a, a, a counselor or a therapist. Uh, they're not all the same. Uh, many of them have, um, have, have good training, but it's not trauma training. They don't know that much about trauma, and that's not their fault. They weren't taught it when they were in school. Nowadays, they're teaching it. 
and it's not in every school, but it's in many schools and any psychological you know departments that they are they are training their students um, about how trauma comes on, how it affects a person, and how to how they can help the, their client recover from it. That's really important that you pick somebody who has trauma training, training, or trauma is trauma informed. That's that's the verbiage we we use, the, the the language we use. So you actually have to ask them. I think, uh, I think the way to find somebody like this is to talk to three of them, and um, take 15 minutes of their time. And they'll all give you that, and immediately tell them why you're coming to them. You know, I, I have other problems too, but the main problem I'm having is I was, you know, I was abused as a child, and, um, you know, I want to deal with it. How would you help me? And then see what they say. The ones that say things that don't make sense, they're not trauma trained. <laughs> but if you're really a uh, survivor and the, and the, tra- the, uh, the, the counselor uh, is using language that, you know, makes you nod your head a lot, <laughs> That's they're probably trauma trained. In fact, you can come right out and, tell, and ask them. Of course, uh, where did they get their trauma, their trauma training or whatever, and they'll tell you. But you have to pick the one um, that seems to be closest to what you think you need. And don't forget, you're not married to the first counselor you pick <laughs> by any means. You can um, switch counselors anytime you want. Uh, and I think this is important to say because there are people who have picked, let's say they've picked the wrong counselor, but they don't know. They've just picked a counselor, and they think picking a counselor is better than not having one, of course. And they're telling their story to someone that's not trauma-trained. And it's, it feels kind of weird, uncomfortable. And they'll come on the show and, or talk to me and say, you know, I've been with the same guy for three years or five years, and he's not doing anything for me. I go, well, get a different guy, you know, <laughs> because not all of not all of us are the same, uh, and uh, not all clients are the same, and not all uh, psychiatrists are, or psychologists are the same. So I, I answered a long answer there, Albert, but I think in the middle of it there was some stuff that related to what you were asking. <laughs> anyway. No, there there was, and I appreciate that. And it's interesting you bring that up because personally, I'm because of my history and my mom's mental health and the way I was treated, I'm a little skittish when it comes to clinical um, therapy and professionals. And so for me, the search was first first identifying that there was healing to be done, and then trying to find a modality that I was comfortable with, something that I connected with, um, so I can at least expel it and begin my process of healing. So I've become open, yep. especially recently, to different ways in which someone can can heal because uh, there is no one size fits all. No, there isn't, and there's a lot of other tools that I didn't mention that are, that can be a part of it. Uh, there's uh, EMDR and there's hypnosis and there's twelve step programs which I went through. There's um, you know there's art therapy and animal therapy and all. They all are part of the healing journey that you may take. And it's up to you. We don't tell people how they have to heal. Uh, we tell them that we tell them all about these different uh, ways to heal, and we help we assist them when they make a choice of how they want to start. But we don't tell them what to do. And that's another thing we're unique at. We don't have a process that we that we force people to take. 
uh, we present them with a, a whole lot of things and explain them. And we have a lot of tools that help pick the right counselor or the right group. And then they, um, you know, they try, they try that, let's say they try the 12-step program and it, it works to a certain degree, but not all the way. So then they switch to a, a, psychi a psychologist, you know, <laughs> and maybe that works for a while, but not all the way. So they go to a, you know, in other words, you're not stuck with the, the way of, of healing either. But at some point, you're going to want to settle into uh, a fairly comfortable healing journey that's a part of the process of the modality, using the word you're using, um, that you select. And because uh, you don't want to, you, you don't want to change, every, you know, every two weeks. <laughs> that would be bad. But, um, yeah, does that help a little bit? Yes, it does. And, and actually, I'd, I'd like to stay on. I might ask a question later, but I want to give someone else an opportunity. Oh, no, no, don't go anywhere. We have a couple of uh, panelists. And we have Annie. She talks all the time, as you can tell. <laughs> and we have me. <laughs> and that's, that's a good show. That's a good size. We'll all get plenty of opportunity to talk. So hang in there, Albert, and I think Annie will uh, call on uh, the next guest. I will. Thank you. Um, and I'll call on, I, I hope I pronounce it right, Leah. Is it Leah? Are you there? Yes, Annie. Thank you so much. This is it's Leah, and I'm, Leah. I'm happy to be on the show. Yes. Welcome. Do you have a question or a comment for Bill? I do. I was um, I was wondering, Bill, if you might speak to your life before the abuse. And um, my my intention with the question is is to show that. Those who abuse and who target children usually know the children who are easy targets, children who don't use their voice, children who lack love and attention, children who are easily manipulated. So I, I, I want to ask, be willing to share what your childhood was like prior to the sexual abuse that you endured at the hands of the clergy, the church clergy. Um, I would appreciate it if you could speak to that. Thank you. Charlie, uh, this is my this talk tonight and always out of my mouth is the truth, <laughs> and I don't have any problem telling you any part of my story at all, any time. Uh, this is too important uh, a topic and a mission in my life, pretty much, that I would um, obfuscate or you know hold things back. My childhood was was different than a lot of people's in that I was adopted at at uh, almost at birth, three months old. And it's the it's this first fact I knew about myself, probably even before I knew what the word adopted meant, I was told I was adopted. Um, so the parents that I had, I understood, were not biologically my parents, but they did love us. My sister and I, who came along a year later, also was adopted from somewhere else. And so we uh, bounced around a little bit. In, well, we lived in New York City for five or six years until we moved to New Jersey so that I could... I didn't have to go to New York City private uh, public schools. <laughs> and we lived in New Jersey for a couple of years, then down to Virginia Beach when my father changed jobs. And we were down there for seven years. Well, that's where I was at, at the end of that period of time uh, abused. So I'll tell you about the – I had a wonderful uh, time in Virginia Beach. This was a place of uh, – you know, it's a, it's a playground. 
And I lived in the middle of this playground. I lived a mile from the beach, and I lived a block from the bay. And I could ride my bike down to the beach, and you could just lay it in the sand and, and go swimming and whatever, and you'd come back and your bike would still be there, you know. Um, and I had a I had an agreement with a person that lived on the on the lake that was at the end of our block that I could use his, his rowboat anytime I wanted. I also crewed for somebody on his sailboat. And, you know, these were water sports. I love water sports. And um, so I, I was a... My sister, too. We were both, you know, fish. <laughs> and um, at some point, my parents um, decided that they wanted us to have the experience of going to camp. And so they arranged first for me. Uh, I usually did things the year before my sister was allowed to do them, and that this was the case here. Um, and uh, they sent me to a summer camp, which was run by brothers, so, um, you know, Catholic brothers. And I was to go for four weeks, and, and it was just because they wanted me to have, you know, a, a good experience in that. Um, now, my, I should say my parents were not perfect, but they were, I believe they loved me and, my, and so forth. I had no problem with who they were and what they did until later in life I did. <laughs> I didn't realize what was going on in my youth. But anyway, um, I, had, I had a really good um, experience with the water sports and they put me in a camp that was on the water it was on the Potomac River uh, and, or a bay off the Potomac River um, in Maryland and man I had a lot of fun but one of the reasons I had fun was they had a giant swimming pool a Olympic sized swimming pool plus they had a lot of footage on, on the uh, bay uh, they had canoeing and they had rowing and they had a, they had a power boat and, oh man um, the, the Olympic pool really interested me, and um, apparently, you know, I, I enjoyed it enough to uh, attract the attention of somebody. I didn't know, I didn't know this was going on, of course. But you know, you mentioned um, that people look for predators, look for uh, people who are um, vulnerable or, or maybe, uh, you know, good. Uh, the possibility there's a good possibility that they can strike up a relationship or groom them into having a relationship. Well, I was taking a shower after swimming in the pool uh, and getting, the, you know, I was just getting the chlorine off of me. And one of the, uh, somebody walked up to me behind me, reached over my shoulders, down into my swimming suit, held onto my testicles, one in each hand, <laughs> and said, oh, you have nice little rocks. <laughs> and I looked up over my shoulder and it was one of the brothers. He was the brother that was in charge of the swimming pool and the photography for the camp, for, well, for the, for the brotherhood. Uh, and he had fabulous um, cameras and a dark room and, you know, he, uh, lenses and all that. And I was, I was actually craving, the one thing I, I was craving as a child was a, a creative outlet because neither of my parents were creative. And I was. And I found out later. I certainly was. I found out my my birth mother was a dancer and a actress, and you know, <laughs> that's where it came from. I didn't know, you know. Uh, but anyway, back then, uh, I was looking for something that I could do, and one of the things that I thought I could do was photography. And he was delighted that I was interested in photography. And from then on, he put me under his wing, and he'd take me to his dark room, and he'd he'd, he'd you know show me how to produce. Uh, very good pictures. He was a very, very good photographer, 
uh, and he was an award-winning photographer, even though he's a brother. So he he was one of the places that I was molested most was in this dark room, and uh, but you know he he was smart. Uh, he did not require me to do anything to him. He did everything to me. And all I had to do for him was to be a model. That modeling turned into you know uh, naked little boy pictures out in the woods and all kinds of things. Uh, and it went on for three years, three one-month periods. Uh, and the third year, uh, he invited me to come to see Expo 67. That's a, it was in Montreal. It was like a World's Fair type thing. And my parents, who knew him quite well, because he was sending legitimate photographs home with me, said, oh, that would be wonderful. What an opportunity for Bill. And they let me go. And it was like two and a half weeks of being with him um, kind of trapped with him. And now there was nobody around that I knew. 911 didn't exist. You know? And I didn't know where I was. I was in New York City somewhere, but I didn't, I, I didn't know. And um, so I had to hold on to my reality, whatever it was, for the two weeks. And he took me all kinds of places, did all kinds of things, uh, and uh, eventually uh, took me out of the country up to Montreal. He spent one night in the car with me, but he needed to go to Expo 67 so he could take a few pictures to legitimately say we were there, you know. <laughs> and um, back to the back to the car. And he was really angry because during this period of time, he wanted me to do things not only with him or to him, but also with that he introduced me to. A couple was, was an older man and a young boy, just like we were, he and I. And he and I would refuse to do that. He wanted me to play with the little boys or whatever. I wouldn't do anything. Um, and he was really angry, but fortunately he wasn't violent as a person. <laughs> because I can only imagine if you did that to the wrong person, you could, you know, you could turn out indifferently than I did. He put me on a bus and sent me home. Um, and about two weeks later, I was at a minor seminary because I had chosen to go there to um, consider being a priest. You know, I was thinking of, of having a vocation, and I went, to, I went to this school for four years. The first two years, I was molested badly by priests and brothers there. The second two years, I was a junior and a senior, and I, I had a growth spurt, and I, I think I was angry, and I was taller, and, you know, I, I, they could, people could tell, don't, don't go near him, you know, because uh, I was no longer groomable. Uh, and um, so that's I, I didn't realize I was going to tell my story too but anyway that's what it was like before uh, and during and after I didn't cover yet but I hope that was satisfactory to what you wanted to know but, uh, I I um I appreciate the um, the share and I you know it to me it's it's very important to look at those those first seven years of life. That's where our core belief systems are created, and that is where um, our, our belief systems are set about ourselves, about the world, and about us and the world. So, I I think it's always important to look at that when um, when there is abuse at the hands of someone outside of the family. Um, I just had a couple of other questions. You had mentioned that. Um, all of your funding is um, is is done is given by the community. Did I understand that correctly, or or do you have outside funding that comes in as well? Uh, we don't have any funding. <laughs> we have contributions that are voluntarily 
given to us by a few of our members. Um, but then okay. on the other hand, we don't have many expenses. As I said, we don't own a building. We don't have office space. We don't have employees. So we're able to subsist on very little money. Um, but we don't, we don't have any fundraising campaign or anything like that. So if we did, we might do uh, more projects and so forth than we are doing now. But we're self-supporting to our own contribution because we follow the 12 traditions, not the 12 steps, but the 12 traditions. And I can answer questions about that if you want. All right, wonderful. And, and then the last question I had was, um, are all volunteers, are they trauma-informed? Well, they're all, um, almost all are survivors, and they, they come from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, all kinds of um, recovery systems and so forth. And they're not, they're not um, uh, for this, and they're not um, security checked or anything like that. But then again, we don't work with kids. We work with parents who may have kids, but <clears throat> there's you know, very little opportunity for anybody who's involved with NASCA to ever have any contact with a child. Lots of adults, but they're adults. Um, and so we don't um, have a testing system or anything like that. However, most of us are in recovery one way or another, of course. All right, that's wonderful. And then you said that you do have a lot of um, different events going on. Can you can you share what those what what you have coming up, or or share where have? we can find that information? Yeah, you know, um, I wish we had more right now. We had more a few years ago. I think maybe the COVID thing calmed it all down. So we have events that happen on Zoom now. Uh, there's an annual, big annual one um, that's really uh, it's a you know it's a community policing thing but it's what it is about public safety and I always talk about um, you know children that are abused uh, it, it's run by a friend of mine and I used to be in a different world it was it was in community policing before I um, started the NASCO organization and uh, so that was one that still exists it goes on annually We've gone to rallies and we've gone to marches and we've done, uh, some people have done uh, protests. They've shown up for, uh, to push forward legislation, but it's not really a coordinated effort. What we have though is a calendar of events that lists, uh, you know, opportunities for people to get to uh, an event in each state so that the calendars are broken up state by state by state and month by month by month, of course. And so if you wanted to know what was happening in April in Los Angeles, there's going to be a, quite a few things because it's Child Abuse Awareness Month. Uh, and, uh, you know, these, these things will probably be sort of uh, not protests, but, um, you know, little marches and things with signs and so forth. Sometimes a talk uh, will be given. They're not organized uh, in a structure that, you can point to and say they do this all the time, well, except for the one I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, there are things, and every state has its own calendar. In fact, every country has its own calendar. And we have a gal, thank God we have her, in London, England, who um, is a member, and she, her uh, uh, volunteerism is to list all the meetings we can find 
in the English-speaking world, all of the world, and then using the same kind of calendar system, all of the uh, events that are happening is, if you send in an event, it goes on the calendar. So we, we hope that people understand that it's an interactive system uh, that we have, um, that if they send in a, they send in an event, it goes on the calendar. If they send in a new group, it goes on the, on the group system. You know, uh, uh, if they talk about um, uh, a meeting, a single, single meeting, that could go, you know, like a conference or something. But if it was a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting, it doesn't belong on the calendar of events because it's, you know, it's, it's not unique uh, enough to do so. It goes in, in another place that we have, we have, we have opportunities for people to spread the news about what they're doing. And we have book signings and things like all kinds of things. Okay, so it's a, a collaborative effort for those who are like-minded and working towards a similar goal, which is to raise awareness about abuse and to allow to create safe spaces for people to use their voice and tell their story. So um, I, I just have one more personal question, if you don't mind, and then I'll, I'll pass the mic to anyone else who is waiting. But um, you, as you were kind of going down the list of, of different um, people you can speak to, you, you added in there your parish priest or your minister. And so I, I just have a, a personal question. Did, did the abuse not turn you off to religion? Because I know, uh, you know, many times that's the case where, you know, you hear the word, religion or church or priest and it's like a wall put up but are, are, are you still open to um, to religion as a space for healing or, um, or or you just know that some people are I'm open to it but I don't use it I'm a, I'm a uh, recovering Catholic right I have no problem going to a church and mass and so forth any of the sacraments uh, or you know that are Catholic I have no problem but um, I'm not going to go there on a regular basis because I lost my kind of belief. I did lose my belief. And when I was 30 um, and I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the uh, principles that I uh, considered and learned, I think, is that, yeah, there, I had problems with uh, people in the church, but it was the people in the church. It wasn't the church. Uh, so it, 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 it uh, allowed me to be a little kinder maybe than some people are with the institution of a church because, you know, I was abused by several priests, no question, but they were from different parts of the country. And I don't think every priest is a pedophile, you know. I just don't believe that. Um, and I know a lot of priests, uh, but I know there are some that are. And I know we have to protect our children uh, in parishes and in schools and whatever that are not just religious, by the way, you know, we we heard about the Boy Scouts a few years ago and Penn State a few years ago. And, you know, it's anywhere that kids can be gathered, uh, they're susceptible because you can't pick out, you know, you can't pick out who the pedophile is, who the predator is. They're hit, they're hiding in plain sight. And there are a lot more than we think there are. So, um, yeah. Uh, let, me, um, let me do this for you too, Leah. The front page of the website has our... Uh, mission statement, and it was read by Annie, but I want to go through it again. We have a single purpose at NASCA, to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. 
and we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, representing the facts showing that child abuse is a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. That's our mission statement, very simple, uh, and we don't deviate from it. So there are no other topics that are discussed, for example, on this show or in, you know, in, in, in recovery groups or something like that. We have a recovery group three times a week, not, not a group really. It's a get-together on Zoom <laughs> three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday uh, for an hour and a half each. And that's another one, another event type thing that we hold all the time. But I wanted to read the mission statement because I think that makes it, it gives it a clarity to what it is we do and how. You know, we don't talk about anything else, gun control, abortion rights, being a Republican, nothing. Uh, and if, we, if somebody starts to do that, we'll stop them and explain the, the uh, mission and ask them to not to get back to the topic of child abuse and the trauma from child abuse. Bill, thank you so much for your time and for what you've put together. It, it sounds really wonderful. I'm, I'm just new to it, um, introduced by Albert, who is also on the call. So um, right. I just had a lot of questions, and I appreciate you going over the mission statement again, I, the educating the public and offering hope and healing. That's, those are two beautiful statements. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm grateful for the efforts that you are making and for having me on the call and for entertaining my questions and answering them honestly and openly. So yeah, thank you, and I'll, I'll pass you. You have to go. If you want to stay, oh, no, I'll stay on. Stay. I'll stay on, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. You're going to get lots <laughs> more you. time because really the only two guests that are here right now are you and Albert. So we'll, we'll go back and forth perhaps, and Annie may want to ask something too, of course. Um, but um, you're going to have other opportunities to bring up something that, uh, you, know, that you think of while we're talking. Um, Annie, it's up to you which, which direction you want to go. You're the host. Then I'm just going to go. I was muted. Up. I'm sorry. I was muted. <laughs> you were too. muted. <laughs> Let me say I would like to give out the phone number so that people can call in and ask questions. The phone number Absolutely. is 646-595-2118. Um, one thing. Hold on, hold on, Annie. Your phone is tearing. The sound is tearing a little bit. I just want to make you aware of it. So you may have to say things a little more slowly. Like the phone number, I'll say it too, 646-595-2118. And that's our dedicated number, by the way, that we use every night. So it's only this show's number, and it's for calling in. <laughs> that's what it is. Okay. I wanted to respond to Albert's um, discussion of healing, different healing modalities. I want yeah. to tell what two of my really great healing modalities have been. One of them is groups, meeting in groups of 
other people who survived child abuse. Um, that, that was what took me from hiding in the closet to a real human being that can walk and talk to people, um, was meeting other people who had survived too, hearing from them things that I could do to get well. So I told the recommended groups. And I was on one that was a telephone group where everybody called into the telephone all at the same time. Um, that's how they did. That was before Zoom. Um, and the other thing that I recommend is writing. I write every day, and I try to just do free writing from the top of my head, whatever comes out. And that's the way that I can get out things without editing myself, without censoring myself. I just let it flow. And I found that writing about the abuse and about I actually wrote like a fantasy fictional about what would happen if I got revenge, that kind of thing. And I found that very cathartic. And um, so those those two modalities, working with other people and writing, I recommend. And back to you, Bill. Yeah, as I said, there are numerous uh, you know, opportunities to use various techniques and tools that some people don't think of as being part of, you know, what what we're doing, healing, <laughs> but they are. Uh, I mentioned, for example, animal therapy. Well, you know, if, I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but if you are like me, I'm a lover of animals. When I'm near an animal, I, I calm down. I mean, I I, I get a relationship out of being close to an animal, uh, and um, I love it. <laughs> so it brings on the endorphins and stuff like that. If you can teach somebody to care for an animal, it'll do a lot for them as well. That's just one example, but you know, there's um, there's an amazing number of uh, things that can be done uh, to help to further our healing journey. What would you like to ask? I kind of have a bit more of a comment. Um, I've really gotten intentional this year to really first understand the concept of a healing journey and realize where I'm at on it. Um, mm -hmm. At first I thought I have a lot farther to go, but I, I failed to acknowledge the fact that I've actually gone a long way because I've been sharing about my past since I was a child in one form or another because of applying through for scholarships or doing different speaking things and uh, all through law school. And each time I shared, I shared a little bit more and the world continues to turn and I feel comfortable disclosing more and more each time. So I didn't really realize it until I became an adult in my mid to late thirties, realizing that I was in fact on a healing journey. But by that realization, um, I become more intentional about it, trying to seek out different modalities and different ways to heal and also being completely open to the different ways and, and methodologies that, that you can use. And, and ultimately I'm just trying to become a better version of myself, um, to, to ensure that I'm not passing things down to my kids and, you know, good, bad, and, and ugly. There's a lot of traits that we learned in our environment growing up um, because my abuse was at the hands of my father. And um, as I study myself more, I realize that some of those traits, um, good and bad, can, can pass through and just trying to be more cognizant of it and intentional about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, understanding how that's impacting my kids. So um, by no means I've, I, have I did what my father did at all, but even even things that um, may seem benign, like OCD, are, are things that 
I really got from the environment that I was growing up in. They were learned behaviors. So uh, my comment more is the fact that it took till my almost 42, like you said, and I got a few more years, but it, it took almost to, to, to that for me to realize that there was healing that I needed to be, that needs to be done and being intentional about trying to heal the wounds and become a better father and becoming a better husband. Well, of course, you can experience some of the things that you just mentioned without being abused, too. It can just be part of how you, you know, what, what any, any experience that you have as a, as a younger person, and you realize it when you're a little older. But we're here to discuss the, because you're shocked into the trauma. The trauma is the result of the abuse. Uh, when, when we talk about, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect, these are big deals uh, to a child. And we don't understand why, why it's happening to us. How come me? We feel like it might, be, it might not be fair for us and so forth. So we start to build a story about why I was selected and, and not being able to get out of it. You know, we're, not, we're kids. Uh, it's hard for us to have – I mean, my, my abuse started when I was 11, okay, and it went for about seven years. And, um, and during that time, I was, I was very badly abused. I was not violently abused, you know, but I was, and I was not neglected, but I was emotionally abused and then sexually abused, uh, certainly, and, uh, and by a lot, in a lot of ways. Uh, after, after the six or seven years, I never experienced it again, but it was still inside of me. And the trauma occurs when you are thinking about it. You have no way to deal with it. And how do you? How does? How does uh, a person's uh, brain and body react to horrible experiences like the ones that I just described, or others that um, you know are totally inappropriate to a child, but are so easy for us to experience when we're young? I mean, it's so easy. Uh, the statistics are amazing. Uh, and uh, they're shocking. If you don't know them, uh, they they are shocking. Uh, Leah, I think you use um, you are uh, uh, semi-professional or professional? Are you not? Is that right? Yes, I'm a coach. I I help adults yeah. who are ready to begin healing their childhood traumas and seeing their addictions with new perspectives. So yeah. Well, now see, that's one I didn't mention, and I usually do. Life coaches and coaches. Uh, in, in, that's another method, but I just asked you because I'm sure you are familiar with the high statistics about that the public is not um, are uh, are floating around our our problem, and they they used to say one in four girls and one in six boys. I don't know if that's accurate. They they say at at, at uh, some places that it's ten percent you know, of, of children. It's, it's amazing, it, you know, if you look at any of these numbers and you think about how many children do we have in our country, for example, and then you say, what's 10% of that? Uh, it's a huge number. For example, we might have, I'm not sure how many children we have, to be honest, but it's, it's an awful lot. And, and, and when you take 10%, it's a big chunk. The idea is that these are kids that are being sexually abused in every neighborhood of every every corner of our country, and it's it's happening silently behind closed doors, and 
you know, frankly, we only reach a small percentage of those that are eligible for a healing journey because most of them are so terrified, frankly, uh, are held back by the, by the uh, strength of, of, of their abuse not to come forward. So I thought you would be able to help me with that discussion, Leah, because you obviously looked into it and would know about uh, uh, some of the statistics. Yeah, Bill, that, but yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the numbers are shocking, and it's it's worldwide. You know, you you mentioned that's it's right. a, a worldwide pandemic, and that's something that I have um, come to understand that it doesn't matter the race, the religion, the um, the the wealth or the poverty. Um, it, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere, um, and and you mentioned that that these um, pedophiles, these perpetrators are hiding in plain sight. Um, So it is very important that we speak to it and that we give voice to survivors who are willing to share their story and talk about it um, so that we bring in awareness and so that parents are aware um, and, and have those open eyes in regards to everyone who is around their children. Bill, do you, do you have children? Yeah, I have one daughter. She's 33 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're a parent, um, and and so you're aware of how they're, um, you know, we're, we're either like blinded by the walls of denial that we live behind, or we're in so much fear. Um, so it's, I, I think parents need resources as well um, to help deal with the, the world we're living in and, and those high numbers in regards to the children who are sexually abused annually. So, yeah, it's an important conversation to have. My daughter never saw me uh, drunk or stoned. And by the time she came along, I was already in recovery for several years. So uh, not that I was recovered, but I was in recovery. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, that was kind of, that's kind of meaningful for me. And I, um, managed to stay sober and clean and use the 12 steps for my uh, trauma and abuse um, for, you know, since I started, which was 40 years ago. Uh, so there's a lot of, and my, my daughter's only 33. So, um, you know, I, um, I, worked, I worked hard at this and I didn't know how, where it was going to go. I had no idea. Uh, how much of a of an issue this is? All these things are they're really deep, <laughs> and uh, you know you, it's like peeling the onion, as they say in AA. They say peeling the onion, you peel one off, and there's another another skin, and you peel it off, and there's another skin, <laughs> and that's how you discover stuff in in recovery because you don't get it all at once. But um, I think I think the, go ahead. Uh, speaking to the numbers, so that, that that's the work that I do is training practitioners. And, you know, I'd like to think that as time progresses, we get better as a society, but it seems like maybe it's cyclical. I'm not sure, but it, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction. And I was, um, I had called in when Pamela Pine spoke with um, her organization a few weeks back, but um, I had mentioned when Mord was on the phone, it seems like we're doing nothing but drops in the ocean. Um, the agencies that I worked for, especially the one state agency, I don't say which one it is, they had let thousands of workers go a few years back, and it's only had a detrimental impact on employees today. They're overworked and they're um, undercompensated, and 
working long hours, dealing with secondary trauma. And so even when they are able to go home, they can't be present with their family. And then when you look at how much they're being compensated, there's a lot of frontline workers, social workers that are leaving. It's very difficult to work in that type of field dealing with this type of these cases with these kids that are being abused. And a lot of um, survivors that have made it to the other side work in that type of field. So not only are they dealing with the trauma that they uh, encounter on the job, but they're also working on their own past. And, you know, I was one of those people. But even if you take it out of the realm of social work, you even look at law enforcement, it's very difficult for them to maintain the ranks in the city that I'm in. Uh, there's an article in the paper a few weeks back where the police chief said they had to reduce the requirements to become a police officer because by the time three or four months go by and they're done with the process, they've already accepted a job somewhere else. So the point I'm trying to make is that uh, the workers that are tasked with intervening, um, their resources are very limited, their caseloads are very high, and just their workload, drinking water from a hot fire hose, would allow them to make mistakes and miss things and potentially not intervene. And so then when they do go to a house, maybe they've gone too late and the information that they could have obtained to prove their case is perishable, it's gone, or they fail to connect and build trust to elicit the information from those that need the help the most. So I feel like my case, which I shared you know, back in February, as egregious and as horrible that was, including a homicide, that still is occurring to this day because of a lack of resources and funding. And that's one of the reasons why I like this organization, making noise, increasing awareness, finding a way to network and pull our resources together. Well, the thing I would want to point out to anybody listening is, as I said before, uh, NASCA has a singleness of purpose. Uh, the, some of the things that you just mentioned would not be comfortably fitting into it, but we can mention them. I mean, we, still, we wouldn't get into it because, because the fact of the matter is you, you can be traumatized at any age by lots of things, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's real trauma. But what we deal with is childhood trauma because they're so innocent. And they have no idea, you know, what's happening to them. And an awful lot of these child abuse situations uh, happen to people who will never talk about it. Never. Believe me. It's a, it's, it is really frustrating to meet people like that who won't give it up, you know, won't give up the story. But I understand it. They're terrified. You know, don't, they're terrified they're going to be judged, for example. You know, and I get it. Um, but the... Um, the childhood trauma, you know, can be dealt with in later in life, and that's, that is the single thing that we deal with, and along with other things. You mentioned, um, you know, the firemen. My, my family's a family of firemen, whatever <laughs> it was, uh, and uh, they're all volunteers. Well, I came to Los Angeles, and I said, well, now it's time for me to put myself into the fire department. I went down there, and they said, Oh, we're all paid. We don't have volunteers. <laughs> what a waste! <laughs> but they said, but LAPD has volunteers, and that's how LAPD got stuck with me because <laughs> they, they had volunteers. So there's um, stressors. I was actually, and, uh, you know, I, I was actually mentioning law enforcement because they're the one of the ones that aid in investigations of child abuse and social services because they aid in child abuse. So the reason why I was bringing that the reason why I was bringing that up is the prevalence. We're talking about statistics. So the number of yeah. kids that are being abused and dealing with it, you would think the number would be going down as we become more educated as a, as a society. But I think it's actually 
the contrary that's true, uh, because social services, law enforcement, the entities and agencies tasked with trying to prevent child abuse, they're, they're, they're struggling right now just to keep up with the workload. And so I think that right. just makes our job all the more important because there are more people that aren't reflected in statistics that are actually being abused. I think that's a bigger problem than we actually know of. And then if you add to the fact that society, to a certain extent, is becoming desensitized to this because we see the stories all the time, it's just making our job harder. So that, that was the point I was trying to make. No, no, you're right. And I wasn't uh, blaming you or <laughs> chiding you. The, we have to talk about these things. They are related. Um, we have, um, you know, we have a, a community of caregivers or of service people who are up to arms and they can't do enough. You know, there's so much to do. Most of the CPS people are overworked. The foster care systems are overworked. You know, the, uh, the all kinds of things, and and the cops are among are, are part of that. Um, and they uh, they go out and they do the best they can, but there are so many crimes going on all around us all the time. They have to they have to drop something and go to a, go to their kind of fire. You know, they have to run towards the bullets, literally. <laughs> and um, you know, so anyway, um, recovery is uh, something that anybody can start. You know, when we started NASCAR, I, I put together some business cards, and they said on the back, 39 million, I took it from the government websites at the time, which they no longer have, by the way, <laughs> They're from the Department of, uh, of Justice and the CDC and uh, the FBI and so forth. They all had the same statistics at one point. It was 39 million. American children had been abused sexually. And, and it, I was shocked by that number, so it went on the card. And a couple of years later, we'd run out of cards. So I went back to print them, and I looked for the, you know, the statistics again. They were all gone. Within that period of time, somebody had made the decision to pull all those numbers off the websites. And they, they pulled them all. They started calling it maltreatment. It's not maltreatment. It's sexual abuse. You know, maltreatment, what's that? <laughs> but they called it maltreatment. They didn't give numbers. They didn't break it out to the four different kinds of, of abuse that we've talked about tonight. So you didn't know how many were this and how many were that and where it was happening. And how. Now, here's the thing. I want to say that we observed that child abuse did go down for a while. There was more awareness, as you say, and more sensitivity. Uh, but it's now back up and maybe up further. You want to ask somebody, ask Carol. She's Carol Levine, uh, for those who don't know, know, uh, know her, is uh, one of our volunteers. She's the vice president of the organization. She's done a lot of looking into this, and she can give you some, some statistics. But she, she's the one that alerted me, and I looked, I looked back and I said, you're right. <laughs> you know, there are, there are more now than there ever were. <laughs> and she, she blamed it on um, the closeness that we had to uh, had to participate in for the COVID epidemic, that people weren't getting out of the house, children were trapped with their predators, and things like that. Now I don't know if that's the, the case or not, because as I said, well I didn't say, but I was going to say, the uh, keeping of statistics is uh, really hard to do because children don't report; uh, they're way underreported anyway, and um, you know, we, we're, a lot of these, this is, you know, starts with 
some hard numbers, but then it's guesswork after that. And the more it's guesswork, it's guesswork. Uh, and they're, and they're, they are saying, and they always have, that the numbers of uh, abused kids are, not, are underreported. So you're right, it went up, I mean, it went, you know, went up and it went down and it stayed down for a little while and now it's going back up. And geez, 39 million, 42 million. I, I saw the 42 million the next time I went to the website, you know. And the third time I went to the website, there were no numbers. There was maltreatment, no numbers. And uh, kind of disappointed me because the thing that impressed me was how many kids they said were sexually abused, for example. And they broke it out originally when I was getting sober. So, uh, or not when I was getting sober, when I was starting NASCA. Uh, and um, now, uh, you know, you have to, it's, it's the best guess, you don't know. So, um, one in four girls and one in six boys, uh, darkness to light says 10%, one in 10. Uh, these are still high numbers. They're huge numbers when you think about it. Um, and, you know, we, we, need, we need to do a better job at trying to identify. We should be, for example, uh, making sure that there's no child that goes off with a single adult uh, for, 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 like, camp reasons or school reasons or, you know, camping or whatever. We have a two, two adults and a child or two adults for, for uh, engagement rule here uh, most of the time, that if a child is going to be, you know, entertained by an adult, a second adult attends, you know, goes along. Uh, it's hard to, for one adult to do something to a child when another adult's there. And that's the reason for that. It's simple, but you have to do it in order for it to be effective. Um, this is Leah speaking. I I just wanted to thank you again for the conversation. I do have to step out, um, okay. but now I am aware that you guys are here, and um, I'm I'm following the website. I assume that I found the correct one. It's n a a s c a dot org. That's um, it. Yep, and I yeah I see the resources there and everything. So I just wanted to say thank you for your time again, and um, it was nice to meet you all and. And I'm sure I'll see you again sometime. Well, I hope so. And you, you can drop back anytime you like. All right? And feel, feel free to call me, too, if, you, if you'd like. Anytime. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care, you guys. Good night. Thanks, Thanks Leah. Leah. Nice lady. Thank you, Albert, for bringing her in. That's great. Um, no problem. So where am I now? Let's go to Annie because she had to wait for a little while. Maybe she has something. Maybe not. Annie, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, I don't have anything specific right now. Can I pass? Of course. Uh, I was going to okay. say statistically, we do know that. And I, I was trying to say, I was trying to say too much when Lisa was here. I didn't know when she was going to leave. But we know, for example, that about 60-something percent of children are abused at home with their parents or with their grandparent or, you know, <laughs> and with their, um, or with their, their family or extended family, let's put it that way. And um, that's, 
a horrible figure. It's, it's a huge number of children that are abused. And then the next group of children is about 30%. Group is the group that I was abused by, which is I call them caregiver group. The caregiver group and it's, could consist of teachers and counselors and priests, of course, and you know, and uh, any kind of group of people that get together because that's their vocation to help children. Believe me, in every instance, there are people from that vocation who are predators or want to be predators. They're looking for opportunities. So between the two, that's it's over nine. It's over ninety something, ninety five, ninety ninety five percent or something. And the last percentages, um, you know, are are minimal compared to the others. So you, we don't think we, that's the stranger danger, like the the little number. Is the stranger danger. So when we talk about uh, 90 percent, 90 plus percent being either family, extended family, or caregiver, that should be shocking to anybody that doesn't know this, <laughs> because uh, it, it, it's an astonishing thing. It's just fact, you know. Um, right, Albert? <laughs> I agree. I'm actually reviewing the 12 tra uh, traditions on your website right now. All right. Let me oh. explain what that is for people who are interested. Um, I, I have a 12-step background personally, but I did not want NASCA to be a 12-step group. I can still, you know, experience the 12 steps, and uh, I have for years, obviously, 40 years. But what I did love about Alcoholics Anonymous, really loved, was the 12 traditions not the steps, but the traditions. And they are on the website under um, under the 12 traditions, uh, under participate at NASCA in the red uh, uh, menus, the blocks that are there, the fifth block, the last one, and it's the second to last link is the 12 traditions. And when you click on that, what opens up is a page that, that has um, a very uh, similar resemblance to the 12 steps as they're written in what's called the big book, which is the official book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing is that any place the word alcohol is is appearing in the big book, now it's uh, NASCA or, or child abuse. And so it's devoted to talking to that uh, to that issue. So do you have any questions about it, Albert, or I can I can help you in any way. No, I think it does explain some of the uh, funding policies of the organization, though, as far as attraction rather than promotion. Um, but okay. I was just trying to look um, because we're because it's such, and I'm part of the family now, so I'm trying to accept that. Um, That's okay. That's good. There's 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 so much I think we um, can continue to do, and I think like you you said, probably COVID had a large impact. So I was just kind of looking at what's the vision forward potentially for growth or other forms of outreach um, as member membership potentially increases? Well, I would like to do a number of things, um, some of which do require money and we don't have any money. I mean, the amount of money that we have at any one time, I don't think it's ever exceeded $3,500 or something, maybe 4000 But um, we don't have to spend money right now the way we do it. You know, the, if I need a printer, I can go out and buy a printer on that kind of money, but I couldn't get a car, you know, <laughs> I couldn't get an office, 
so it, it handles the small things that we really do need if we need them, but not anything bigger. Here's the thing. The um, organization is going to follow these traditions as close as we can, but we're not, you know, we're not going to uh, deny the ability to recover from anybody because we're a stickler on one or two of the traditions that we just can't get around. You know, we have to talk about those things. Maybe the board has to decide, but uh, you know, like you say, every group has to be self-supporting, declining outside contributions is tradition seven, and that's a that's a big one. It's why we don't go out and and get fundraising and so forth. But um, the the fact of the matter is, we could hold like fundraisers, maybe dinners or something like that, or or campaigns. We could do that, and you know, we'd be we'd be serving ourselves and not asking for begging for money from, you know, whoever, Rockefeller. <laughs> um, but, you, could, you know, these are valuable for, for our sake because, you know, it's a new world. These were written, by the way, in the, in the 50s. Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 Steps, were written in, the, in 1935. And they've never been changed. And when it seems that... Uh, that the organization needed a little guidance, a written guidance. They came up for the 19, I think it was 55 uh, convention, international convention, with these principles. And they passed them at that convention, and ever since they've been the uh, 12 traditions. It, it's just, it's so this is, this is a protection for the group. That's what the 12 traditions are. But you can apply it to yourself, too, if you want. The 12 steps are more for the individual recovery, but the 12 traditions are principles that guide the group and keep it strong. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, sure, it does. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. There's no power in this. You know, we serve each other. That's what it is. <laughs> The only requirement for NASCA membership is a desire to recover and heal from child abuse and trauma. Pretty simple. That's the only requirement for membership, which is why we say welcome to the NASCA family to anybody that says, I want to be a NASCA member. I want to recover. <laughs> welcome to the NASCA family. There's nothing to sign. There's no dues or fees to pay. Anything. So, um, I could get hung up on the, I've done whole shows on the 12 traditions before, so let me get off of them and ask you guys if you'd like to hear anything about something else. I'll give the phone number out again, Bill. We still have 15 sure. minutes. Um, if Absolutely. anyone wants to call in, the phone number mm -hmm. is 646-595-2118. One one eight. So give us a call. And right now we have Albert on the line and myself and Bill. Um, so I don't have a question, Bill. So perhaps Albert has another one. I was looking on your website. It looks like we can actually click on our website and see some of the upcoming guests um, for your current schedule. Yeah. There. Um, this. The place you'll find that is under um, uh, calendar of events, right? Uh, you pull down under the first red menu, 
down and the block, the, the uh, blue tension, counter of events is the third thing. So if she's been told about it, uh, Carolyn, the gal from London, has added it to the right place at the right, you know, the right month. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was speaking about your um, the upcoming guests for future episodes, too. I see that you can see different uh, people and backgrounds, and if you have someone that speaks to something that resonates with you, maybe you can call in. Absolutely. We have, um, uh, we've done 3,200, something like that, shows, and we've kept track of who's been on the show before, and we have records of that. Um, and so, you know, it's absolutely appropriate for people to come back. Once they've been here once or twice, they can come back. We like them to wait nine months because we want plenty of space for other people. But the fact of the matter is that as it's been uh, a struggle to keep people engaged in the topic of child abuse, it's also been a struggle to get people to come forward for the show. And we don't want that to be the case. As you can see, it's pretty easy to do a show. You just answer questions. And most of the shows that we're talking about here, Albert, are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday shows, which are the shows when a personal a story is told. The survivor tells their own story and um, talk about how they were abused, the, the trauma that resulted in their adolescence and early youth, uh, early adulthood, and, um, and then the recovery that they're in now. That's very simple to do, but it's terrifying for people that haven't done it before. And that's what I was saying before. We have to we have to encourage people to do this, but um, yeah. So the current schedule, it's a bit in big letters. That shows you where we are right now. Uh, but we go back into previous years even and ask people if they would consider, please consider, you know, doing it. And you know, most of them do. <laughs> they they have a good experience here, and it feels good to, you know, the the, the most horrible thing about you might be the child abuse that you experienced when you were eight, you know. But the, the wonderful thing about this is that if you are healing from it, it occurs to you at some point that the child abuse itself becomes the tool that you can use to attract others to their recovery. And it feels wonderful when you realize you've done that. So this is, you know, we're doing it obviously for the un, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, un, uh, the child who's uninitiated child uh, recovery person, but we want them to get into recovery, and as we do, it means a lot to us. You know, now they'll stick around some of them, and we'll know them for years, years, <laughs> and that's really wonderful. So, um, see what else? Here? Well, if you don't mind speaking a little bit more to the recovery group, um, I see that's on the website as well. Is that something where people are just viewing uh, a couple of moderators that are leading a discussion, or is it completely interactive, or how does that work? The Zoom meeting, you mean, right, is a um, is a, an hour-and-a-half meeting. It's held three times a week on Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday at 2 o'clock Eastern. Uh, so for you, it would be 3 o'clock, right? No. Yeah. 1 o'clock uh, for me. I'm 1 o'clock. <laughs> right, forward. <laughs> 1 o'clock for you. 
and for me it would be 11. But wherever you are, it's it's live, as it are these shows. You know, they're all live. So, and um, these shows are recorded, so you can go into our archives and have the shows play. And as you said, there's quite a, a, a description of each show on the website that stays with the show. The, the shows are listed year by year by year going backwards, but they say who is the guest and what they're going to talk about and sometimes where they, uh, where they recovered and so forth. But for 90 minutes, they talk about themselves and their recovery. So what, that's, that's that. Zoom is uh, a new motif for us uh, that allowed us to um, replace a meeting I had in my living room, frankly, uh, three years ago, something like that. Uh, and it was just getting off its feet when the COVID crisis came. And when it came, it, it came with a vengeance, as you remember, and nobody was going to anybody else's house. <laughs> so I scrambled around and found Zoom to be the thing I was going to use to promote something that was online and accessible to everyone, but where nobody breathed on anybody else you know, or sneezed on anybody else. And Zoom is really a good meeting group. Now, we, we call it a recovery group or a a recovery meeting, it doesn't have specific, again, rules or things you have to do or anything like that. It, right now, it's another reason that uh, we're trying to engage more people because it, it's a wonderful group, but um, it, it only attracts a few people on each of these days now. We used to have 15 and 20. Now we have three, you know, and uh, and it's not... You know, and it is held regularly, but the facilitator, um, you know, just opens the room and sits there for an hour and a half, and if nobody comes, oh, well. <laughs> I'm one of the facilitators, so I can speak to this. <laughs> but uh, we're, um, you know, we're hopeful that uh, people will come back to the Zoom meeting. It's, it turned out to be a really worthwhile uh, format, I think, uh, that everybody, lots of people appreciate We have talk show archives that go back to, they're actually, they actually go back to 2008. But I wasn't doing five shows a week, much less eight shows a week <laughs> uh, back then. So we put them on this one calendar that starts them all here, 2011, I believe. And uh, as we came forward, we were doing more and more shows. In front. It didn't take long for it. We were doing five a week. So every show that we've done, pretty close, is represented here. And, uh, you know, when we ask somebody to return, they usually do because we hope that they have a good experience, and I believe they do. Uh, and, they, you know, they come back, they repeat their story, they give us updates on where their life has gone since the last time they were with us, and, of course, they're all NASCA family members and all volunteers. So we are very grateful to that group, of which you're a member. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate it. And thank you for answering all my questions. I know I've had quite a few today. No, no, no. It's a, this is what it's about. And I'm happy to do this. I I wish that more people would ask the question. Maybe some people are listening, of course. And I started to say, these shows are recorded, 
so you go into the calendar, uh, the uh, you know the calendar shows, and the the blue link is the name Stop Child Abuse Now and the number of the show. And I just saw we have 3,160 shows. So you can go down the page, click on anything you want, and you know you're led by the description of the show. And you can do this back year after year after year back. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 amazing. The organization of this alone uh, has a lot to do with why we're successful because it's not hard to find things. Not you can't get lost. <laughs> Annie, let me throw it back to you. I know we're coming to the end here. We uh-huh. are. We have we have five minutes left, and. Uh-huh. Um, So we have time for a few last thoughts, if you have any. Well, I have one that might embarrass him, but uh, Albert has uh, become engaged in helping at NASCAR. He's not just sitting there anymore. He didn't just do a show. He got got himself involved. We don't know where that's going to go exactly, but I just want to tell him uh, publicly that I'm grateful. We need help. And uh, Albert, you know, came forward. So thank you, Albert, for doing that. We're not sure what you're going to end up doing, but you're already doing this, and you're already helping me find guests uh, for the the talk show. And that's a need we have all the time, Annie, as you know. We need uh, three new guests every week because uh, the special guest shows uh, are – three out of five of the radio shows that we do. And they require uh, some gathering of statistics, some gathering of, not statistics really, but of uh, facts, uh, contact information, so forth, and then a bio, which is what we call the significant uh, block of uh, paragraphs that accompany every show. There, um, There's a lot of meat to those the characterizations, and it's very easy to know what to expect by taking a look at the characterization of, of the story. Um, so it's a lot of work, the point, and Albert's uh, going to be helping, and I really appreciate it. And we can announce to the listeners that if any of you would like to share your story of having survived child abuse, you can certainly do that. You can, um, Bill, how shall they get hold of you if they want to be one of the Monday, Wednesday, Friday guests? What I really need is an email address to get started. So um, all they should do is they should send me an email because then their email will be in the email. And maybe maybe give me a tiny bit of, you know, contact information, maybe their name, uh, where they're from, uh, uh their phone number, of course, would be very helpful. And then if they have a LinkedIn or a Facebook page, that's good to have. If they've written a book or they have a website, that's good to have. All those things are in the in the, in the realm of contact information. And I, I like to get that and their idea of what show they'd like to be on because I'll book it right away. Uh, and then um, from that point, they can just – they can write – they can take their time writing the – we call it a bio or a show description that they'll send to me. And it does not have to be a finished product at all. It can be a a kind of all over the place, 
and I will cut it down. But we only want um, 300 words, roughly, about as big as you're seeing on any one of them. But we can't take it further than 2,000 characters. That's a blog talk limit. So it can't be longer than 2,000 characters. I expect to count characters. Roughly 300 words. You know? And now we'll make it work. I'm very. I'm an editor, really. I'm an editor. Uh, so I can blend things and cut things, lift things, keep the important stuff in. <clears throat> so they could write. Bill, would you give your yeah. would you give <laughs> your email address, Bill? I was just going to. It's B for Bill. M U R R A Y. The number three, and the letters R D. At AOL.com. Let me repeat that. B. Murray, 3RD, at AOL.com. The 3RD is because I'm the third Bill Murray in my family. My father and grandfather were also William Murray. So, B. Murray, 3RD, at AOL.com. You can, you can Thank find you. My phone number. You can find me, my email address, phone number, and other thing about me all over the website. So don't be afraid to find me. The website is nasca.org. That's N-A-A-S-C-A dot org. And thank you all for coming to tonight's show, and we'll say goodbye until tomorrow and take you out with our music. Thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Another tomorrow, because that's gone away.